Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Joining me today, Martha from Boston Red Cloaks. Laura from Boston Red Cloaks. Linda from Indivisible Acton. And our special guests today are Jesse Mermel. Good morning. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And also Representative Tammy Gouveia. Good morning. Good morning. So glad to be here with all of you today. We're here today to talk a little bit about campaigns, fundraising, campaign finance, campaign expenses, everything related to running for office. One thing that we really learned in our first season was how important it is to pass legislation that's important to us to follow candidates, not just in our own districts, but also across the state. So Jesse wrote this amazing article. It is called Remove Financial Barriers to Running for Office. And you wrote that on December 22nd, which was, as you know, a really tense time for those of us following the ROW Act not to mention national politics, but that article was a real bright spot for me because you were being really direct about some of those challenges. I wondered if you could unpack for us a little bit what brought you to put pen to paper. Sure, well, in 2020, I ran for Congress in the fourth congressional district uh, and wasn't successful, but really proud of the race that we ran. And I am not someone who comes from personal wealth. And a congressional campaign, as, and as I'm sure Tammy can speak to a state rep campaign, isn't something that you can do halfway, isn't something that takes just a few weeks out of your life. It's six, eight, 10, 12 months. For me, it was a whole year. And you need to be able to devote all of your time to it. That means you're not getting income from someplace else. And as someone who doesn't come from wealth, that was incredibly challenging. And it's not something that we talk about. Statistically, we know that women, particularly you know, black and brown women, indigenous women, Asian women, are less likely to have access to the type of personal funds that would allow them to take the time off to run a campaign. And that directly impacts the pipeline of talent that we have of people who are pursuing office and making our laws. And you better believe that impacts the type of laws that are being made. In Massachusetts, you are not allowed to touch campaign funds, things that you raise from supporters to help pay any personal bills, to take a salary. If you run for federal office, you are allowed to take a small percentage uh, of your previous salary in order to, uh, to provide a salary to yourself as a candidate, but it is largely frowned upon and it is only allowed for a few months, not the entire time it takes to run a campaign. I cannot tell you the number of people I have talked to, incredibly talented, civic-minded women who want to run for office and just can't afford it. And I know it feels so icky and uncomfortable to talk about money, but one of the things I said in that piece is that we have to put comfort aside if we're going to make real change. We have to talk about this if we're going to change the pipeline of talent of folks running for office. And we're at a place in Massachusetts where we still don't have what people consider a critical mass of women in the state house. We're not at 30%. Even after winning some seats. Um, we're not there yet. Representative Gouveia, I want to turn to you and and ask a little bit about how this struck you when you first heard Jesse's argument. Yeah, it's one that I've um, actually lived through. And um, we know that, you know, oftentimes women on average need to be asked seven times to run for office. And I firmly believe that one of the barriers is the fundraising piece. It is incredibly uncomfortable to ask people for money. We know that if you're running for a state rep seat, a state Senate seat, congressional or US Senate seat, or any other office where you're having to ask people for money, oftentimes it means that you're also calling complete strangers to ask them to invest 
invest in you as a candidate, to invest in your values and your ideas. And it is incredibly challenging to think about well, getting past the discomfort of asking people for money, because we do live in a culture where we don't like to talk about money at all. And we also firmly believe, many of us, that you know, the role of money in politics is um, creates a lot of barriers to the kinds of policies that we want to pass, because we end up with candidates and elected officials who are not necessarily from a diversity of perspectives, lived experiences. And Jesse really hit the nail on the head. You know, there are so many people who would love to run for office who are civic minded who are completely engaged in our communities across the state who don't run for office because it would mean that they would have to cut their hours at work or you know rely maybe on one income I ran as a single mom. I have wanted to run for office for a good 20 years. And I didn't run for office until my children were old enough where they could make their own meals, where ordering pizza wouldn't be that big of a deal and they could sit down and eat if I'm you know, making my fundraising calls or connecting with voters. So I needed to wait until my children were old enough that I could do that because we don't have the structures in place to support women candidates, particularly um, women from low-income backgrounds, black, brown, indigenous, and Asian um, women who might want to hop into um, running for office, but the barriers are there. Jesse, you brought out, for example, um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was struggling just to pay for rent. And now we're looking at COVID when so many people have lost their jobs. We learned that in the last quarter, I can't remember the number, we learned in the last quarter of, of the job losses nationally, and that most of them were lost by women and women of color. So you know, Jesse, what do you think when you look at what's going on with COVID now about the women who we most need? To so when I think about how we chart a fair and just and equitable path forward out of not just COVID, but the overlaying crises we are enduring as a country right now, these are things that impact black and brown women, Asian women, indigenous women, the LGBTQ plus community, low income workers. Those are the voices that we need at the table making decisions for us going forward. And those are the exact voices that Jesse, for every reason you articulated, who's being impacted by the economic crisis of COVID and also the people that we had intentionally left behind for generations because of policy choices that we have made, they are now exponentially less likely to be able to make the sacrifices of, uh, that are unfortunately necessary in our system to run for office. So we've created a scenario where the folks we most need at the table are now less likely to be able to run and lead. And it is, I think we're going to see for years to come going to negatively impact this country. And we know exactly what we need to do around campaign finance reform, around getting big money out of politics, around removing barriers of entry to participate in this process, exactly what we need to do uh, to change that. And we just need to have candid conversations and build the political will. You're talking about congressional and state offices, but I'd like to point out that this also applies to town elections, local elections. Absolutely. My own select board is made up of older people who are no longer working, and it's four men and one woman, and there are no women uh, of color or men of color. And this applies all the way down the line. I know I thought about running for um, select board and there's another way that I could do that. I could not afford to cut down my hours on my job and devote 40 hours to, to that kind of thing. So it's kind of select self-selecting. You either have the money 
or, and, and you can run or, or you don't have the money and you're not able to run. That feeder system going from the local city council or your local school committee. I ran for school committee. People in the state often don't realize that people who serve in your local offices aren't paid. They're volunteers. So they have to be able to afford to volunteer or have some kind of support system that gives them the time for, let's face it, really long night meetings. Like, you know, your local meetings can be five or six hours on a weeknight. How did you start uh, Rep Guvea? Did you start from a local office or did you run first for Rep? I just ran straight for uh, state rep because of some of the challenges that Linda described with trying to start out at the local level. If you want to do that, it's it's incredibly rewarding. And I have nothing but tremendous respect for people who serve at the local board level because it is so time consuming. Uh, you're not financially compensated, but you know the rewards are tremendous. But it is oftentimes people who have access to wealth or who are not working a full-time job or perhaps are working a, a full-time job, but there's a lot of flexibility built into their job. So it does impact the pipeline that we have over time. Um, so I chose not to run for a local office because as a single parent, I wouldn't be able to you know, manage myself working my regular full-time job and then add on 40 hours at the local level. And then, oh, maybe in the future, think about running for office. How do you have essentially th the equivalent of three full-time jobs working the one that pays, you know, to keep a roof over your head and food on your table, the one where you're volunteering, and then the one where you're serving as a candidate. So that was not an, uh, an option for me to be able to manage all those three. So um, strategically, I chose to just wait until the time was right for my, my family where I could run for um, state office, state level office. Um, but it cannot impress enough just the importance of that pipeline and diversifying um, the pipeline. And it even goes all the way to internships, right? I mean, so often our internship programs do not pay interns. And so what we end up with are people who intern at the state level at, you know, up at Beacon Hill who um, have access to wealth, have access to resources that um, other students may not have access to our first year college students, um, you know, first generation college students, black, brown, indigenous populations as well, and particularly women as, you know, women students also. So Jesse, if we can turn to you and talk a little bit about your campaign, you really ran this amazing you know, a seat opened up when Joe Kennedy stepped out to run for Senate. He ultimately lost. And then instead of seeing what we often see where there's one or two people running, you had a wide field. We didn't endorse anyone, but we were really excited by your message. And you were speaking very directly about issues that matter to a lot of people around pro-choice, around equity, around, you know, really dismantling some white privilege. And, and you were in this very divided field. But let's talk about the money part, because it's a really expensive campaign. And ultimately, you know, did we see a shift in a more, in a more, did we see a shift in who ended up winning the seat to someone who maybe felt more of the people? We really didn't see that. At one point in our race, we had 11 people running. I think by election day, there were nine, maybe eight. There's so many people, I can't keep it all straight, um, who, whose names appeared on the ballot. Uh, listen, in the times that we're in, it is a wonderful thing to see so many people step up and put themselves forward as folks who are willing to serve the public. That is always a good thing. Four of the folks in our field were, were women, and I was so proud to run with this just incredibly talented group uh, of other women. I, I literally had coffee with one of them yesterday. Uh, you really have relationships forged in fire when you, when you go through a campaign together. 
Um, but it was a campaign that was dominated by a lot of wealth in fundraising, um, in independent expenditures and super PACs. Um, and I think it's really uh, something that needs to spark a conversation again about the role of money in politics, the role of wealth in politics and the ways in which, uh, you know, I'll emphasize we have intentionally created through policy choices over generations these, uh, these structural barriers for people to participate in the process. And um, I, I wanna echo something that, that was just talked about around local government. I served on the select board in Brookline for six years. I was in my late twenties, early thirties, working full-time at nonprofits. I got a job and made very, very clear, hey, Tuesday nights, select board meetings. I'm probably gonna get some calls in the middle of the day from people who have questions about town stuff and there's other things that gonna come up. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely, that's fine. We totally understand, glad you're here. Fast forward a few months, I almost got fired on the spot for not being able to participate in something on a Tuesday night. Now, this is obviously a, a problem of great privilege, right? I was employed, I had income, I was an elected official, uh, but these are the types of conversations that don't happen if you have personal wealth, if you are retired, if you are uh, your own boss, if you have your own law firm, which so many of my colleagues on the board had. Um, we actually just put forward a warrant article in Brookline last fall that would have paid select board members and school committee members a stipend that more accurately reflected the 20 to 30 hours a week uh, that were put in to being on those boards. And unfortunately it lost. Uh, and I hope that it comes back again. I hope that other communities start to take up these issues because imagine what Tammy would have been able to accomplish if she'd been able to run for local office, right? What did we miss out on by not having Tammy and the millions of other Tammies across the country not running for office at the local level or through Congress and Senate because you just can't afford to do it? And look, since we're being as direct as we can today, thank you for sharing that about being a select board member and how much time it can take. Because let's face it, there are people in the state who might have those roles who don't put that kind of time into it. They show up at the meetings, they use their seat to exercise authority or power over decision making that's convenient for them. They're not necessarily the person who's taking every call from every concerned resident. They're not necessarily listening to other boards and committees the same way. You know, a good person does that at the local level. And I think, Rep Gouveia, let's go to you too. I know that where you are at, similarly, constituent service can take a really long time. And so even if you're paid a salary at that level, how you can field an entire district that you're now representing, I've learned requires actually having staff. So if you could speak a little bit about that, because the expenses, there's the expenses of running, and then there's these other expenses where if you're wealthy, you might be able to do more once you get a seat. Yeah, I really appreciate this question because um, for many of your listeners, they may have been reading and the, you know, learning in the news recently that um, state reps and state senators and elected officials in the state of Massachusetts are experiencing getting a, a pay raise. It's in the constitution and is sort of like, some mechanics of why this is. Um, but part of the debate, and it becomes an ongoing conversation, is we need to make sure that our state reps and our elected officials are compensated at a level um, where they can do this as a regular full-time job. 
And there are some state representatives who are able to forego the raise um, because they do have another side gig, either as an attorney or some sort of consulting role. And that's great that they're able to do that or maybe a, a two family income. But if you're not a two family, if you don't have two incomes and you're trying to serve as an elected official and you know it's really challenging in many of our um, communities across the Commonwealth to even just be able to afford housing and groceries and healthcare and uh, college education, that we really need to take a look at the whole soup to nuts around uh, the role of financing and fundraising and money in politics when it comes to running for office, but then also just staying in the job. I've had many people uh, from transgender people to women to people of color who have reached out and said, I'm really interested in running for office, but I can't live off of that salary. That would be a huge pay cut for me. We have people who are serving who make you know, a lot less than they did when they were teachers, when they were social workers, um, when they were public health officials, when um, you know they were working at nonprofit agencies even. And so we have a, a, a bigger problem when it comes to making sure that we are able to have people who represent the diversity of our Commonwealth and the diversity of states across the country when it comes to serving, because it does, as Jesse already said and was already said here, it has a direct impact on the kinds of conversations that we have in the halls of government, the kinds of policies we take up, the kinds of policies that we prioritize. And I firmly believe in particular that women um, from diverse backgrounds, we're the backbones of our families, we're the backbones of our communities, and there's so much lived experience and so much wisdom among women that does not get uh, percolated up in the halls of government because the barriers are just there and they're really challenging to overcome. And, you know, it's a systems issue. And it's one that we really need to be addressing, as I said, from soup to nuts, from running, even just running for office to being able to serve. Thank you. Um, I, I just wanted to say, Jesse, too, that, that your article was so informative. I, there were things that I didn't even know, um, the, the personal financial gifts and the, um, the, the fact that you can't get a salary until you're already on the ballot. That seems so counterintuitive. Um, but um, I'd like to ask, what, what do you think that we could do to address the systemic obstacles on the state level? So obviously there's some huge macro things, right, about making sure that we're changing the policies that make it harder for women and people of color to accumulate wealth and systemic racism and sexism that exists everywhere. But in a, in a very concrete way, Massachusetts could emulate and I would hope expand on the federal law that allows candidates to pull uh, a salary from your campaign. This would not be public money. I can't emphasize this enough, not public money. It would all be publicly disclosed as are all campaign expenditures, but this would be using your campaign funds that you raise privately to help make sure you can keep your lights on and you can pay your mortgage. Uh, you know, Tammy mentioned being a, a one income household. I'm also single. And so one of the things I talk about in the article is that you can't get help. If I had a wife or a husband, they could help. Um, but because I'm single, there's no one who can help me keep my lights on. And that makes a lot of sense because we wanna stand up against corruption, but we've created this, this other obstacle. Massachusetts could emulate, and again, I hope expand upon the, the federal opportunity there. Federally, uh, a woman named uh, Luba Gretchen Shirley who ran for Congress several years ago uh, pushed and won a federal change that allows for campaign funds to be used to pay for childcare expenses that come up because of the campaign. Uh, and Tammy touched on this a little bit in her remarks earlier. 
allowing that here in Massachusetts would be huge. And making sure that we are pushing forward these municipal changes that would compensate local elected officials appropriately for the amount of time that they are spending. Nobody gets in public service to make their fortune and, and nor should they. It is public service for a reason, but it also shouldn't create barriers to people from all areas of life from serving. Um, and it shouldn't be the type of thing where you have to go into personal debt in order to pursue an opportunity to serve the public. And then we need to have a real conversation about fundraising. I, by complete happenstance, was on the phone with another state representative, a woman uh, here in Massachusetts, and we were talking about fundraising. And she said she so often calls women to ask for a contribution, women who she knows, not just support, but are grateful for the work that she's doing around reproductive health, around women in the workplace, around climate change. And they don't understand the connection between making campaign contributions in our current system, which very much needs to be changed, and making sure that the women who are doing this work, fighting this fight on all of our behalves, are able to get reelected. And so we, we've got to get real about those conversations and make sure that we're banding together to financially support the campaigns of women who are fighting on our behalf. I have a question. What changes do you think we could make for these to be possible? Yeah, I think Jesse really covered them um, in terms of the campaigns, you know, at the congressional level, as was already stated, once you get on the ballot, you can draw a salary. That's not the case for our state um, campaigns. And then also the childcare and other supports, um, being able to use our campaign funds for, for those kinds of things would be a tremendous help. I think that also the last point that Jesse made, which is really banding together and really helping each other understand what's at stake and why even get involved in issues that we care about and campaigns and making sure that we're supporting candidates or supporting elected officials, not just when they're running for re-election or not just when they have a race, but throughout the whole, you know, every all the time that they're serving, because that's how we can make sure that our uh, strong elected uh, females and uh, people of color and low-income folks can keep their seats and continue to do the great work on behalf of people in the Commonwealth. But we need to support people, um, you know, throughout the time that they're serving and not just when it seems like there's a big race. And I think, you know, the ways that um, where we've been in terms of the nation, we've spent so much time looking at and focusing on, um, if you're a Democrat, flipping the Senate, um, you know, trying to make sure that we're getting good candidates into elected office office um, all across the country, um, but it's really important that we continue to pay attention to the pipeline in Massachusetts from the local office to state level office and then congressional and, and you know, Senate seats as well. But that pipeline is something that's really, really important for us to invest in. The time goes really fast. We are so grateful to have both of your perspectives and Jesse, for you to put this out there. I think you said it can be squeamish to talk about money. And I think one thing that's great is as women, we're we are going to be a different generation and we are going to talk about money. One thing that comes to mind is a way we can all help and listeners can help is go ahead and start asking for money in addition to, you know, asking people to volunteer to write postcards. Also, we've got to get more comfortable saying, look, can you chip in? Because, hey, Jesse ran this amazing campaign and we would like it if she'd had whatever funds she needed. Or if Tammy's running, we want to let people know that she was out there literally at the state house during the pandemic with the red cloaks 
saying it's really important that we pass the Roe Act and Senator Becca Rush was out there too. They really stuck their necks out. So maybe they don't represent you in your district, but you might wanna pay attention to these people. Um, and wherever Jesse runs next and whatever she does, it's really probably not the best idea to have the candidates being the ones who are asking for their, their own support. That's tough. So we hope listeners will take a look at Jesse's article. We'll put the link out there. And again, thank you so much for putting this on the table. My pleasure. And can I just say, a lot of women think that if they can't write the big checks, it doesn't matter. They couldn't be more wrong. Look at the power of grassroots fundraising and campaigns around the country. If you can give $5 or $50 or $100, and maybe you can get three friends to do the same, you are making a huge impact. So I don't want folks to think like, oh, I'm not some fancy, you know, rubber chicken dinner, hotel ballroom kind of donor. Well, none of us are in COVID, but you know, <laughs> my, my donation won't make a difference. No, the, the power of numbers is real. Give that $5 and call, you know, your book club members or your neighbors or the, you know, the folks from the PTA, whatever your network is and ask them to chip in, explain why it's so important to you. And that's how we turn this ship around. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank really you. Appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.